Good evening. Uh, welcome to Calvary Church. For those of you who may have stumbled across us on the internet, we are an evangelical church in the heart of Brighton on the south coast of England, and this is our evening service. Whether you're listening to this from the outback of Australia, although that seems a bit unlikely, or whether you're listening to us from Port Slade, you're very welcome, and we pray and trust the Lord will bless our meeting together. I'd like to begin tonight by reading a great psalm, which is Psalm number 8. If you've got a Bible, you can look it up and read it along with me, or just listen if you prefer. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise. Because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honour. You made him ruler over the works of your hands and put everything under his feet. All flocks and herds and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, and all that swim in the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's sing tonight our first hymn, which will be on the screen, but is also in the praise hymn book, which is number 192, which is based on this psalm. O Lord, our God, how majestic is your name. Let's sing together.
Now let's pray. Our God, our Father, we come before you this day and we acknowledge that you are a majestic God. And we, we want to sing and declare, along with the psalmist, how majestic is your name in all the earth. What great, wonderful things you've done for people. How great is the creation that you've made, the universe and this world which you've given us to be our home. How many, Lord, are the the good things that you've done for us, the blessings you've given us, the privileges you've given us as as human beings. And even in this psalm, Lord, we we read about the, the high position that people have in your creation. And this psalm, Lord, reminds us that not only did you give us all these good things in our world, but also that you sent your son into this world. You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. We thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ who came into this world as a human being like us, as a real person, flesh and blood, and yet still fully God, came to this world to save us to save the world, to save those who trust in him. We thank you, dear God, dear Lord, for your great love towards people, your mercy and compassion. We pray that we would be among those people that praise you as you ought to be praised, that give you the the worship that is due to your name, that, that praise your son and believe in him. We pray as Christian people that we would, that you would forgive us of our many sins, Lord. You would demolish any pride that we have or self-sufficiency or self-righteousness and bring us again to the cross of Jesus Christ where the righteous one gave up his life on behalf of his people to save us and bring us close to you. I pray, Father, you'd forgive us for any pride any, any selfish agendas, anything which we've done, Lord, which is not pleasing to you. We pray that you would put it on our hearts even tonight, anything in our life which is not right and not pleasing to you. And I, I mean everybody in the whole church, everybody listening to this when I say that, myself included. Please forgive us and be merciful to us. We pray, Father, for our church in these days of coronavirus law when so many are so fearful of the future so fearful of death so fearful of things being turned upside down we pray father that you would help us as christian people to not only speak the truth in these days but also lord to be encouraged not to fear what they fear to not be frightened but to have our hearts full of faith looking to you remembering the the promise that your son will come again to save this world and to judge this world. We pray, Father, that in this nation, that many would turn to you, that many, Lord, would turn away from their rebellion against you and be saved. We pray for this godless city where so many, the vast majority, do not confess the name of Jesus. We pray that you would do a mighty work in this place, that this might be a home of righteousness. We pray that your churches in this city and beyond would be active in fulfilling the Great Commission by telling people about the only hope 
which they have, which is given to us. The only name by which men must be saved, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that this church would be abundantly fruitful even in these days. I do pray, Father, for anyone who's listening to this who is discouraged or fearful or anxious, you would bring your peace. You'd calm the troubled seas of our hearts. You'd give us grace. I pray you would protect us, protect our loved ones, and help us, Lord, even in these days, to be about your business. We pray, Father, that you would hear our prayers. In Jesus' name, amen. Today, we're going to read now our main scripture reading for today, which I will speak on, which is to be found in the Gospel of Matthew. We're continuing our series in Matthew's Gospel, making good progress. And we've reached as far as chapter 21. And we shall be reading today the so-called parable of the tenants, which is to be found in Matthew 21, verses 33 to 46. This is Jesus speaking to the people in the form of a parable, in the form of a story which, which illustrates a spiritual point. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented out the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a long journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent more servants, other servants to them, more than the first time. And the tenants treated them in the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. When the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come on, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to others, other tenants, who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone? The Lord has done this, and it is marvellous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held 
that he was a prophet. Let's pray before we come to the word of God. Father, we thank you for your word, which is preserved, divinely preserved for us. And we thank you, Lord, that although these words were spoken many thousands of years ago, they still speak to us. They're absolutely important for us. So we do pray, Lord, you help me now to open the word for your people and that you yourself would open the word to us and teach us whatever you want to say to us today, dear Lord. Please give us hearts that are not hard, but hearts which are soft and responsive and willing to listen to your voice. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Dear friends, it's so good to be with you today and to have the opportunity to open up the word of God. And I've been so blessed in studying these passages and challenged as well. What I have to say to us today, I believe, is very, very important for us to hear. Now, I know I, know I have a reputation for being a long preacher, and that's perhaps my inexperience. I haven't learned the art of being concise, and I'm working on that. But I wouldn't want you tonight to look at this long sermon and just to, to not bother listening to it or just to skip to the song at the end or just to, to listen to bits of it. If necessary, listen to some of it today. Listen to the rest of it tomorrow. Have your Bible open. Make notes. And really think about what the Lord might be saying to us through this parable. What we're seeing in this section now is Jesus is in the last week of his life on earth. Is him launching a sustained barrage, if you want to put it that way, of teaching aimed at the Pharisees, the chief priests, the Jewish religious establishment, highlighting to them their rejection of him and, and their, their rebellion against God and their, their exclusion from the kingdom because of their rebelliousness. We see that in all these parables in this section. And the parable we're looking at today is in a way, this is the history of Israel in story form. So if you want to understand and summarize the whole history of Israel from Abraham right up until the time of Jesus, you can see it encapsulated and summarized in this parable. Let's look today at the steps that take place in this story. And it is a story. It didn't really happen this way. Jesus was inviting his his listeners to envisage this scenario being played out. It would have been a common image in that society. So what's the first step in this story of these these tenants in the vineyard? Well, the first step, of course, is this. The landowner establishes his vineyard. We see that in the first verse, don't we? The 33. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it dug a winepress in it, and built a watchtower. Now, we need to remember that for the people of the time of Jesus, the image of a vineyard was a clear reference to the nation of Israel. 
they would have been very used to this idea that, that Israel was God's vineyard. And this is a, a, um, a metaphor which, which is rooted in the Old Testament in several places. And straight away, when, when Jesus' hearers would have, would have heard him speak in this parable, their, their minds would have been taken straight away to this parable, to, the, to the, the references in the Old Testament, particularly the one we're going to look at now. So if you want to turn up Isaiah chapter 5, I think this is probably the clearest reference to this in the Old Testament, where Isaiah talks about Israel in terms of a vineyard. In fact, if you look at Isaiah chapter 5, verse 7, it says this explicitly, the vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel. I want you to notice in Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, the great similarities between this, the introduction to this section in Isaiah, and the introduction to this parable that Jesus speaks. So let me read to you Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. I will sing for the one I love, a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut a winepress as well. So you can see the the imagery here is almost identical, not quite, but almost identical to the imagery that Jesus is is, um, bringing forth when he talks about Um, this other vineyard that this man planted and prepared and built a watchtower and all the other things which were necessary for the vineyard to be fruitful. But Isaiah goes on to say this, then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. So Israel is pictured as a vineyard in Isaiah And Jesus is alluding to this, referring to this in this parable very clearly. Just as the landowner, the master in the parable, does everything necessary for that vineyard to prosper, so God did everything necessary to make sure that Israel had the right conditions to prosper spiritually, to bring the kind of fruit that he was looking for. In Isaiah 5, verse 4, God even says this. He says, what more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? God did absolutely everything necessary to make sure that his vineyard was in a right place to bear fruit for him. But I want you to notice as well that when Jesus tells this parable, he he veers off a little bit from the meaning in Isaiah In in Isaiah, the problem is that the vineyard and the vines produce bad fruit. In the story that Jesus tells, although it begins in a similar way, the focus is not so much on the fruit or the vineyard itself. There was no problem with that in the parable. The vineyard was abundantly fruitful. The problem was with the tenants whom the master had rented out the vineyard to. Look back to the parable we've just read together. Have you noticed that the the master, the landowner, he establishes a contract with some tenants. He chooses some men and he entrusts the vineyard to them for their care, for their cultivation, for their husbandry, to use an old-fashioned word. 
He did everything to prepare the vineyard, but he gave it to these men to look after. And he establishes a contract with them. They get to get to look after it. They get to share in the profit. But all he asks is that the people pay him his dues and give him a share of the crop at harvest time. Dear friends, one of the problems we have as human beings, I believe, is that we want to call the shots when it comes to God. We want to establish so often the the terms of our relationship to God, and we want God on our own terms. But it doesn't work like that, does it? God created this world. God gave us all good things. And since he is the creator and we are the creation, we are his creation, part of his creation. In fact, human beings were given you know, stewardship of the world, in a sense. They're, they're above the animals and above the creation. Since God is the creator, God is the master, God is the Lord, God has the right to call the shots. God is the one who has the right to set the terms of the relationship between humans and him. And so often we forget that to our peril. But in this vineyard, the master who had prepared the vineyard and dug out all the stones and built all the infrastructure, he establishes this contract with the tenants. And they agree to those terms. And it was all so promising at the beginning. Now, friends, this is a clear picture of God's relationship to Israel as a nation. I'm not talking about the modern state of Israel. I'm talking about the the national Israel, the children of Abraham. From the beginning, God established a covenant relationship with Israel. You know, he he chose Abraham and he, he promised to make him into a great nation. Gave him promises, actually extraordinary promises. He showered the nation with privileges and promises and blessings. He delivered them from slavery in Egypt, didn't he? He settled them in a good land and he gave them that land. And he promised them unnumbered blessings, unmitigated blessing, if only they would obey the terms of his covenant. If only they would keep their side of the bargain. And what God was looking for from his people was obedience and heart righteousness. What I, what I mean by that, I use that term a lot these days. It wasn't just looking for external obedience or legalism, but he was looking for a heart of righteousness, a heart that loved him, a heart that would long to do his will and to obey his law. If you want to look at Deuteronomy chapter 10, I think this, this encapsulates it very well. And now Israel... This is Deuteronomy 10, verses 12 to 14. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God? To walk in obedience to him, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. To observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I'm giving you today for your own good. Dear friends, that's what God was asking of his people. Was that so very difficult? Was that so very demanding to love him, to obey him, to serve him? 
and recognizing what a kind and gracious God he was, how good he had been to them, to choose them as a nation and establish this covenant with them. Was that so very difficult? Was God so, you know, was God being unreasonable to, to ask that of them? So we see, just as in the vineyard, the contract was established between the, the landowner and the tenants, we see God establishing that with a people, a similar kind of arrangement where God promised blessing if his people would keep their side of the bargain. In Exodus 24, when the, when the law is set before the people of God, the demands of the covenant, the people said this, the people answered with one voice, we will do everything the Lord had commanded. Just like those tenants in the vineyard who'd agreed to give the master his share of the crop at harvest time. So the people of Israel promised to be faithful in covenant relationship to the Lord their God and to obey everything he'd commanded. They did it corporately together as a nation, as one people. It all started out so promising, didn't it, in the vineyard and in the house of Israel. But the second part of this story, we've seen that the vineyard has been established by some kind of covenant or contract. The second part of the story, we can find this. In verse 34, when the harvest time approached, he, the landowner, sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. It was quite reasonable, wasn't it, that the, the, the master should send his servants at the appointed time, at harvest time, to go and get, to go and collect what was owed to him, what he'd been promised by the tenants. And then we read something which would have been shocking, scandalous, outrageous to the hearers of this story. And if we picture this taking place, we would be scandalized as well. What does the word say? What does Jesus say in this story? Were the, were the servants received with open arms and given the share of the crop? Well, no, they weren't, were they? Because what does it say here? Verse 35. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. I think in, in Mark's version of this, it says they were sent away empty-handed. They, were, they, were, they had their heads bashed in. They received a savage beaten, beating. They were sent back empty-handed to the master. Some of them were even killed. You think to yourself, what on earth would warrant such wicked behavior, such outrageous behavior? Why would you do that to these, these servants who've come on their master's business? Well, I think the master in the story is extremely patient because it says here, doesn't it? Verse 36. Then he sent other servants to them more than the first time and tenants treated them the same way. So the master, even after his servants had been killed and beaten, he still keeps on sending more servants again and again to try to, presumably to reason with the tenants, to try to get his share of the crop. I mean, he, he could have come in, couldn't he, straight away and killed all those, all those tenants, but he, 
he, he exercised restraint and he showed mercy. Patience. Now, we mustn't be in any doubt whatsoever that these servants in this story represent the many prophets that God had sent to his people Israel over the years to call the nation to righteousness and to repentance, to call them to remember the promises they'd made, the covenant, to bring God the fruit of righteousness. Time and time again, Israel had turned its back on its promises, turned its back on its God, despised his laws, practiced idolatry, and committed all kinds of wickedness. And God, in his patient mercy, sent servant after servant, prophet after prophet, to come and reason with the people and call them back to him, to offer them, even at that stage, a chance to to bring the kind of fruit to him that he required and wanted. Without fail, Israel killed and persecuted the prophets. Jesus himself is going to go on to say in in chapter 23 this, verse 34, Therefore I am sending you prophets and sages, wise men and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify, others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. If you want another sad record of what happened to God's prophets, you can go to Hebrews 11. You read about terrible things being committed against these, these messengers from God. Just some of them were sawn in two. Can you imagine that? Soaring one of God's prophets in two. Any human being, but let alone a prophet of God. They were stoned to death. They were rejected. They faced jeers and mockery and flogging. They wandered around in the world. And the world was not worthy of them. The history of Israel, very sadly, was a history of disobedience. A history of unfaithfulness. And God had always been faithful. But his people weren't. And a history of killing the prophets. And that's why Jesus actually says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets. That's what Jerusalem had become. It had become a city where prophets are killed. And it was a long history of this. And then after... In the story, after this had happened so many times, the landowner has one more to send. Look at verse 37. Last of all, and I want you to notice those words, last of all. He sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. This is the third stage in the story. The landowner sends his own son his own flesh and blood, to the vineyard to speak to those tenants. You might have thought, and the landowner thought this, that surely they would respect the son. It's not as though they didn't recognize him. Look at verse 38. When the tenants saw the son, they said, this is, they said to each other, this is the heir, come on, let's take him. Let's take him and the inheritance will be ours. Let's take his inheritance. Those men had absolutely no respect for the master. They had no fear of the master. Didn't they even suspect that he might come and try to punish them or get revenge on them? 
Perhaps they even thought they could overcome him in some way. Very sadly, those tenants, they see the sun. They kill him. They throw his body out of the vineyard like a piece of rubbish. Thinking that somehow they can overtake, they can take over the vineyard and somehow it will belong to them. And of course, the son here represents the Lord Jesus Christ. In Acts 7, when the apostles are preaching, they put Jesus at the, long, the end of a long line of prophets that have been persecuted. It says this in Acts 7, verse 52. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not kill? Sorry, did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. Just as the tenants killed all the servants, one by one, or at least rejected them, beat them and mistreated them, so they mistreated the son and killed the son. There are two very important details here which I want to bring to you and highlight, which help us to understand what's going on in this story. The first of all is the words, last of all, in verse 37, last of all, he sent his son. There's also a minor detail which Matthew doesn't, doesn't put in his account of this parable, which Mark does in his version of it. Mark says, Last of all, he sent his son, whom he loved, I believe it says. What can we learn from this? And I, I don't want you to skip over this because I, I think this is, this is important because I know there are people who deny these, these things. And if these verses are to be taken seriously, they tell us a lot about the identity and purpose of Jesus. The first thing we learn is that Jesus is God's last representative. The writer of Hebrews, if you read Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, draws out the distinction between Jesus and the prophets. And he makes it clear that Jesus is the last messenger that God will send in this way. Hebrews 1 says this, In the past God spoke to our ancestors, through the prophets, at many times and in various ways. But in these days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. So I want us to be very clear that Jesus is, according to this parable, according to Hebrews, according to many places in Scripture, he is God's last representative the last one that would be sent by God to this world with a message for the people. That's true about Israel. That's true about the whole world. There will be no more. There will be no more prophets. There will be no more messengers. No more holy scriptures after the New Testament has been put together. There will be no more direct revelations. No more messiahs. Jesus is, is the last representative that God will send to this world. And every, every 
well, most false religions and cults often say that this is not true, that somehow there will be some other messenger or some other prophet who will come after Jesus with a direct revelation from God, which adds to our knowledge of what God wants us to know. And as I said, this parable makes it clear that Jesus is the son and he's the last one in that line. There will be no more. And the second point that we can learn is that Jesus is God's greatest representative. So we should not think that Jesus is just a prophet, as some do. He's not even the greatest of the prophets. The identity of Jesus here is clearly identified with the son in the parable. I'm sure the master valued all his servants. They all brought a message from him. They all represented him in some way. But how much greater did he love his own son, his own flesh and blood? How much more did his son represent him, being one in substance and nature with him? This was the heir. This was the one who was to inherit the vineyard after the father had died in the story, of course. He was, you know, the only son. He was the, the one who was to inherit all this, to carry on the family name. And the father loved him and trusted him to represent him in a very special way, in a unique way. And Jesus himself was loved by the father, the son whom he loved. Think about some of the the things the word of God says about Jesus, the righteous one. None of the prophets are called that. Jesus is called the righteous one. The son whom God loves, with whom he is well pleased. The Bible says he is the one in in whom all God's fullness dwells, the Lord Jesus. He is the exact representation of God's being. He is the radiance of the Father's glory. He is in very nature God. All these things are spoken of Jesus, the carpenter of Nazareth in in the New Testament. Wonderful things are said about him. Jesus is not just another prophet, not just another servant. He is a servant. In a sense, he is like a prophet. But he's so much more than that. He is the beloved son, the radiance of the Father's glory. And yet the shocking thing is that despite all that we've just said about Jesus, and we could spend an eternity rejoicing in these things. This precious one, this righteous one, was also a representative, a servant who died. And there are some who, whose version of Jesus doesn't allow him to die. See, God's son could never die. But Jesus makes it clear that he knew full well that he was going to die. If this parable is a picture of him, he knew he was going to be killed. And he knew he was going to be raised up as well. Now, parables in the Bible are not supernatural stories. They don't concern supernatural events, generally speaking. They talk about natural things. And this parable can illustrate very important points about the history of Israel and the life of Jesus, the role of Jesus. But it cannot give us the full picture. That's why we need different parables. And to put all this teaching together to get a complete picture 
of what God would have us understand about him and his son. But there are some differences between the the picture in the parable and the actual reality, which is far more complex, far more wonderful than the story can allow us to understand. So let me highlight to you a few of the differences between the, the story in the parable, the son in the parable, and the Lord Jesus. The first difference is, is that God knew that his son would be killed in advance. In the parable, the, the landowner sent his son to the vineyard not knowing how his son would be treated. In fact, you, you, could all, you, could, you can almost say that he was hoping for the best. He said, they surely will respect my son. When God sent his son to the world, did God not know what was going to happen to his son? Of course, God did know. God knew full well that his son would be murdered by sinful men. That is why we could say that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, his one and only son. He didn't just send him not knowing what the outcome was going to be, but he gave him, knowing full well that he would be killed. He gave him for those very people and others like them that killed him. And what's more, the son, who also in the story, the son in the story didn't know what was going to happen to him. He probably hoped for the best. He hoped for a good reception. The son of God came to this world knowing full well his fate. He knew full well what he was going to have to suffer and he willingly submitted to that for the sake of the glory of his father and for the sake of the salvation of his people. He went went to that cross and he died intentionally giving up his life. So the son in the story didn't want to die. The son of God also, we, we sense from his prayers in Gethsemane, he didn't want to die, but he willingly went ahead and did that because he loved his people and wanted to obey his father. How does it make you feel when you think about human beings killing God's only son in such a brutal way? I hope it makes you feel very disturbed and I hope it saddens you, fills your heart with grief that, that people could do such a wicked thing. I've mentioned this before in my sermons. I don't want to offend anybody, but there are many people who are very upset about animals suffering, vivisection, animal testing, cruelty to animals. And Christians should also be deeply upset about Cruelty to living creatures. You know, cruelty to animals does not honour God. But would that even one-tenth of those people that are so concerned about cruelty to animals ponder, think about, consider the cruelty, the wickedness of people just like us, brutally killing God's own son who only came to this world to call people to righteousness, to call people to give God his dues, and was just butchered 
Isn't that a terrible thing? We can also wonder, can't we, at the courage of Jesus. That he, he knew this was going to happen to him and he still went through with it because he loved you and gave himself for you if you're a Christian. Greater love has no man than this than he give his life for his friends. I think we can all thank the Lord Jesus and thank God for sending his son doing this for us. So God knew in advance that his son would be killed. That's the first point. The second point, as I've already alluded to, God had a purpose for the death of his son. In the story, in the parable, the murder of the son is a meaningless tragedy and it's the end of the son's involvement in the story. And this, we're touching holy ground when we talk about this. In some mysterious way that we cannot understand, at the height of human rebellion, the height, you know, the zenith of human wickedness, the culmination of Israel's rejection of God through his messengers by killing his own son. Through all this, God somehow marvelously achieved his purposes. In Acts 4, the apostles prayed this. They, talking about the people that killed Jesus, did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. So although the killing of Jesus, the murder of Jesus, was a terribly wicked act, in some way, it was God's will that he should suffer. To suffer in the place of his people, to be a sacrifice of atonement, a sacrifice that takes away sin. And in some strange way, the people that killed Jesus, the people that rejected him, which includes all of us in some way, the fact that they, they killed him, the actual act of his death was the very means by which they could be saved and forgiven. So in the killing of Jesus, as bad and, and wicked as that was, that very act was necessary for those people to be saved and reconciled to the master, to the Lord, to God. One of the greatest comforts in the Christian life, dear friends, is God's providence. How is it that our God can use even wicked acts and evil things to achieve his purposes? Is a mystery, but it's a wonderful comfort that the human's can bluster and they can reject God and do all these wicked things and somehow God still achieves his purposes to exalt his son and glorify his name. We believe it was for us he hung and suffered there. What is the outcome of this parable? So the son has been killed Jesus uses a very clever device here. In a way, he gets his opponents to take God's side against themselves. So it's a bit like with David when he sinned and Nathan the prophet. Nathan tells him this parable about the lamb and David himself gets angry and indignant about the way the person 
in the story had been treated. And then Nathan the prophet turns to him and says, you are that man. You are that man. You've said it with your own lips. You've condemned yourself with these words. So Jesus asks them here, doesn't he? Verse 40. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? You can imagine the people being emotionally engaged with this story. At this point, the tenants have committed such a wicked act that the master will give them no quarter. There'll be no mercy. There'll be nothing else except his wrath, his anger, his righteous anger being kindled against them for his, their terrible rebellion and mistreatment of his servants and the murder of his son. All that would come would be a bloody, horrible, terrible retribution. And they, the people say it here. They, they, they will bring those wretches to a wretched end. So the master would come, presumably with some other men, and he would, he would totally butcher, slaughter those wicked men. He would cleanse his vineyard of them. And then he would give his vineyard to other tenants that he could trust to bring him his share of the crop at harvest time. And I think there are different ways for us to understand what is going on here. But first and foremost, this is talking about the judgment of national Israel. And I want to be very clear here, we're not talking about any anti-Semitism or anything like that. But we're talking about a very pivotal moment in the history of Israel when, because of their repeated rejection of God's prophets and, in fact, the Lord Jesus, which was coming in just a few days' time after this parable was spoken, they would suffer terrible destruction. Forty years later, at the hands of the Romans, temple would be obliterated, Jerusalem would be destroyed, thousands would be killed, and the Jews would be scattered to the four corners of the earth. The whole system, the priesthood, sacrifices, all that went with it would be totally destroyed. And history shows us that actually happened. There is a picture of God, in a sense, rejecting for that time Israel, taking away the kingdom from them and giving it horror of horrors to, amongst others, believing Gentiles, non-Jewish people who were considered to be dogs and outcasts by the Jews. Give it to them, including believing Jews as well, of course, but the Gentiles... How on earth could God give the kingdom, the privileges, to the Gentiles? Well, that's, that's what's about to happen because of the Jews' hard-heartedness and rejection of their Messiah. The gate is thrown open wide to all who will believe from every nation. For all who believe in the Son of God, put their faith in him, there would be the privileges of the kingdom, of belonging, so in a sense, this is talking about the rejection of national Israel and the inclusion of the Gentiles. People that would, would bring the fruit that God wanted. Also, I think it's talking about the, 
the judgment of the Jewish establishment in particular. Because we need to remember that not everybody in Israel rejected Jesus. There were many, many who believed in him, amongst the, especially amongst the common, ordinary people. But those custodians of the kingdom, so-called, the religious establishment, the chief priests, you know, the hierarchy, the Sanhedrin, the vast majority of them anyway, who rejected Jesus despite all the evidence of his messiahship. Jesus says, the kingdom will be taken away from people like you. You represent those tenants who are supposed to bring good fruit, to lead the nation in righteousness, and you've turned your back on God and on his servants and on me. And because of that, you yourselves will not enter the kingdom. But tax collectors and prostitutes and blind people and crippled people and ordinary people who repent and trust in Israel's Messiah will be included. And that, of course, was another shocking and scandalous um, thought for these, these religious leaders who, who prided themselves in their righteousness and their law-keeping. And Jesus says, no, you will not enter the kingdom because you are wicked on the inside. But these people who put their faith in me will enter the kingdom. And also, dear friends, you might be sitting here today thinking, what on earth has this got to do with me? But this is very, very relevant for you and for me because, in a way, although the vineyard represents Israel, in a sense, the whole world is God's vineyard. And God is the master of that vineyard. And God has given that vineyard to people, human beings, to look after, to bear fruit for him. And this is foreshadowing a time when God will come and take back his vineyard. He'll take back this world and he will judge it. And he'll take away those people who at the moment proliferate in the world, who do not bear fruit for him. And he will give it over to his saints, to his, his people, to the believers. And they will inherit it with him and they will inherit the earth. Now, Jesus, let's go back to the, the parable again. So the, the, the master comes and takes back his vineyard. But then Jesus he, he quotes something from the Old Testament, Psalm 118, which, which throws a whole new dimension onto this parable. As I've said to you, parables can only tell part of the story. But this, this it might seem a bit incongruous, this parable, this, this, um, this, this thing about the stone. You think, what on earth has this got to do with the vineyard? But this actually illuminates the story and helps us understand something very important. This is verse 42. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, perhaps the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So, as I said, this is a quote from Psalm 118. You've got a picture of some builders who are on a building site, a first century building site, and they are putting up a building and they're looking for a stone that will be the cornerstone, the stone in the corner of the house or perhaps on the lintel of a door, which will hold up the whole structure. It's very important they choose the right stone. And they find a particular stone and it looks promising, but these builders decide that this stone is worthless. 
They, they reject the stone. They cast out the stone. They throw it away somewhere, away from the building site, and it lies there in the long grass. And they forget all about this stone. But unfortunately for them, you cannot forget this stone. You cannot reject this stone forever because you can try to reject it, but it will come back to haunt you. And it will come back to do you a great deal of harm. What does it say about this stone? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this. So in some marvelous way, the Lord will take this stone, whatever this stone is, whatever it represents, the Lord will take this and he himself will exalt this stone and make this stone the most important stone in the whole structure. And you can imagine, I mean, I thought of a very flippant um, example of this. You often hear about this, this record label that, that rejected the Beatles when they were you know, young men and they were just starting out in their career. Some, some record label didn't sign them because they thought they, were, they weren't going to make it. They, there was no value in signing them as, as a musical act. And of course, if that had been you, you'd be kicking yourself. You'd say, well, we could have made so much money. This band was one of the most successful bands in history. And it, on a much greater scale, these builders who've rejected this stone will have the humiliation of seeing the master of the building site coming and saying, you've got that completely wrong. I thought you were, you were supposed to know what you were doing. You've, you've rejected the very best stone of all. And I'm going to put that stone in the place of honor and raise it up all to see. And you will see that stone every single day and you realize that you have rejected the stone that you should have raised up into the most important place. But I'm going to do it. There will be a humiliation a shaming of those who've rejected the stone that should have been the cornerstone, and God will do this. And even before this, we can see that that stone will do them a great deal of damage for those who've rejected it. Verse 44, he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. And I believe this is referring to the same event as punishment of the wicked tenants, God taking back his vineyard. So it's very clear here, the stone represents Jesus. The rejection of the stone is the crucifixion, the killing of Jesus, the same picture as the killing of the son in the parable of the vineyard. And the raising up of the stone represents the future exaltation and universal praise of Jesus in the world. And his resurrection, of course, as well. But that stone, the stone that's been rejected, can trip people up. And that stone can hurt them. It says here, doesn't it? He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. That stone lying there that was rejected can trip you up and you smash your head in. And it totally defeats you, totally destroys you. Or just imagine that stone had been left in some high place and somehow it got moving and it fell on top of you. Imagine being crushed by a massive millstone. You'd be crushed like an eggshell, wouldn't you? What a horrible thing to happen for the stone to fall upon you. Why does Jesus insert this, this section about the stone that's been rejected that becomes the capstone? 
But he wants us to know that unlike in the parable, when the son was killed, and that was the end of the story for him, he exited the story, had no further part to play. He wants us to know that unlike that, he, the son of God, will have a future part in this story. And not just a bit part, but he will take the most important part of all. He is central to God's purposes and plans. I want you to consider for a minute the parable and what the death of the son, the murder of the son in the story meant for him. Well, the tenants killed him. And because of that, he had to stop making his appeal to the tenants. You know, a dead man can't speak anymore. So as soon as they killed him, he could no longer appeal to them to turn to his father. The death of the son in the story meant that they no longer could keep on rejecting him. Once they killed him, that was the end of it. They'd, they'd rejected him, they killed him, and that process could not continue. The death of the son in the story shows that his death was meaningless. He could not be a saviour of those people. He could not show mercy to those people because he was dead. A dead man can't show mercy. A man who was just killed, a normal man, his death doesn't mean anything at all. He's just a man whose, whose life has been taken from him. The death of the son in the story meant that he could not show forgiveness or grace towards those people that killed him. A dead man can't offer forgiveness to someone. You can't apologize to a dead man or try to make amends with him or try to make peace with him. And the son in the story who was murdered could not take part in the judging of his enemies, of the retribution that was going to come upon those that, would, that, would, that had killed him. Only his father could do that. Now, I want you to think for a moment, if Jesus is that stone that has been raised, that has been resurrected, that lives again, unlike the son in the story whose, whose death was the end of him, but for Jesus it was not the end of him. If that is true, what difference does it make? I think it makes all the difference in the world. And this is where the rubber hits the road. This is where it gets very personal for us. Because... The death of, of the son in the story, the death of Jesus, rather, the death of Jesus and the rejection of Jesus was an actual event in history. And the result of that was the rejection of Israel, of national Israel, as a corporate nation. Those things actually happened in the past. You can look in the history books and see those things. But because Jesus has been raised to life again, because death was not the end of him, this process still continues. And on a much wider scale, we're not just talking about Israel, we're talking about the whole world. This is why it matters. Because unlike the son in the story, the Lord Jesus Christ is still making his appeal to the world today. Came to Israel, they rejected him, but now to the whole world he makes his appeal through his servants through the preaching of his gospel. And Jesus is calling out to people even today. Death has not stopped him doing that. He's still doing it. He's going to people and say, saying to people, turn to God, give him his dues, worship him, and believe in me as his son. Put your faith in me, listen to me, trust in me, and you will be reconciled to God. 
Stop living for yourselves. Turn your back on your sins. And turn to God and he will forgive you. And Jesus is still continuing this process everywhere where the gospel is preached. And Jesus, of course, this is the added dimension that the parable couldn't, couldn't talk about. His death on that cross, as I've said already, was the sacrifice that made it possible for you to be reconciled to God. The very act of killing the son was the thing that, that brought those people that killed him back to the master and made it possible for them to be forgiven and receive mercy. When you hear the message of Jesus being preached in whatever form, it might be somebody like me preaching in church, it might be a gospel tract you get through the door, it might be that that man in the town centre who's trying to talk to you about Jesus, whatever it is, it might be a Christian friend witnessing to you, that is not just a human voice. Jesus Christ, the Son, is making his appeal to you and telling you that you must be reconciled to God. You must give God his dues. And you would be very foolish indeed not to listen to that and take that seriously. And no, the death of Jesus did not stop that appeal taking place. He's still coming to you and coming to people every single day saying, be reconciled to my father. And the second point is this. Unlike the son in the story whose death meant the end of his rejection, Jesus is still being rejected today, and that is an active, ongoing process all over the world. Many people, sadly, would do anything to get rid of Jesus if they could. If they could kill him, they would kill him. I know what I'm saying is controversial, but I want you to consider, is this true, or am I barking up the wrong tree completely? Many people today... Many regimes, in fact, throughout history have actually tried to crush the church of Jesus Christ, absolutely obliterate it to the point where there's no believers. They've never succeeded. Even today, in many places, people are trying to silence the voice of Christ calling to them. And let me say this, it doesn't matter if you do this very passively and politely in a very middle-class way, or even in a religious way, if you reject the Son of God, you do not listen to him, it doesn't matter how you do it, you can do it aggressively, you can do it passively, if you will not listen to him, you will not respond to him, you will not give God his dues, it's all basically the same. You're doing exactly what those people were doing in the vineyard. You're doing exactly what those people were doing at the time of Jesus. You're saying, no, I don't want this person. I don't want God and I don't want his son. And that's very serious. Let me say this, I don't even know who's listening to this, but if you are trying to write God out of the story of your life, if you're living as though your life belonged to you, you could do whatever you like with it, if you've got no inclination or desire to listen to anything God has to say, to give God even a small bit of what he deserves, if you just want to get rid of him, if you just want to shut him up, as quickly as possible, and get on with your own life, enjoying yourself, pleasing yourself. If you're doing these things, if you think that somehow you can can create a world where there is no God, where there's no, as you call it, religion, where there's no more Christianity, if that's the kind of world you're longing for, you want to expunge God and take over 
it as your own inheritance, then you are heading for a big fall. And let me say this, I'm not taking the moral high ground. We've all done it. Every human being is born in this default position. We've all rebelled against him. We've all lived without giving him his dues. And that is why, that is why it's so important that we get reconciled to him. And this is the message of hope, dear friends, because in the parable here, we see, don't we, as soon as the son is killed, at the very first opportunity, the master comes in a terrible rage and kills those wicked tenants and takes back his vineyard. But in God's mercy, there's been 2,000 years already since the killing of his son, that first rejection, and the time when he comes to take back his vineyard, to take back this world. And in this period, God is so merciful, so patient by giving us this season of mercy. And people can come to him, even now, who've been rebelling against his son and receive mercy and forgiveness for their rebellion in his name. Some of you may think, well, on that day of judgment, surely God will be merciful to me and let me off. But Dear friend, this is the day of mercy. This is the day of salvation today. God is being merciful to you today. By not coming today to take back his world, he's given you a chance to be right with him through his son. And dear friend, if you've turned away from him in any way, whether you're somebody who's never been a Christian or somebody who's professed to be a Christian that's turned away, I've said this before and I'll say it again until I'm blue in the face. You can try to write him out of your life. You can reject him, but one day, just like that stone the builders rejected, he will come back. He will come back to you sooner or later. You will have to confront him, the one that you've rejected. And that's, that's the, the fascinating thing about this, this reality, isn't it? That Jesus, unlike the son in the story who was dead, Jesus himself will come back with his father on his father's business, and he himself will get revenge on those who killed him. He offers forgiveness to those people that killed him. He offers mercy to them. He says, I know you've rejected me, but I forgive you if you come to me. But for those who don't turn to him, he himself will be involved in the judgment. And that is what it's talking about, the stone crushing people to pieces, falling on people. God has ordained it, dear friends, just as the stone, God will make that stone the cornerstone, the capstone. God has ordained it that his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, will be exalted in the whole earth. Every knee will bow before him. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Every single one. That is inevitable because God has ordained it. History is moving towards that time when that rejected stone is seen in the place of honor, in the highest place, glorified. And those who rejected him will be humiliated. And that stone will fall on them and crush them, smash them to pieces. If you're feeling discouraged today, dear Christian person, you see so many people mocking the Lord Jesus. So many people completely indifferent to him or just rejecting him. You think, where's this all going to lead? Let me point you to these verses to encourage you. It's all going to lead in a very good place for us. 
of our Lord Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords, being universally worshipped. Everyone submitting to him, even those who rebelled against him. Verse 43 says this, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. I haven't got much time to explore this today, and I've talked about fruitfulness already, and there's a lot that could be said, but that's what the church of Jesus Christ is, isn't it? That's what it should be, at least. It's a place where fruit is evident. The kind of heart righteousness that God wants, worship, obedience from the heart, love, and all these wonderful things that God has called his people to, that's a place where these things are to be found. The church is to be abundantly fruitful. We are to be abundantly fruitful. If we're part of that church by grace, through faith in Christ, we should be a fruitful people. Rebels saved by grace. I want to ask us, and I'm really sorry we haven't got time to really unpack this today. I'll talk about this again in the future. But the kingdom of God has been given to us as Christians. Are we a fruitful people? And this is something I'm really wrestling with in this period of lockdown. Is there anything in my life that's stopping me being fruitful? As fruitful as I might be. We might have to take some quite radical steps to deal with things in our lives that are stopping us being fruitful. But if we are true believers, we will be fruitful and we'll long to be more fruitful. I want to finish with a final challenge, really. When the Lord comes to take back his vineyard, to take back his world that belongs to him, will we be found in a good place? Will, will, will he find us in rebellion against him or in some kind of compromise or some kind of bad situation, some kind of sin? Or will he find us at peace with him, walking with him, submitting to him, bearing fruit for him? As I've said already, if you haven't made peace with the Son of God on that day, there will be no second chance. He will bring you to a wretched end. He will be the stone that falls upon you. You don't want the Son of God falling upon you. He's full of grace and mercy, full of love. But there is a limit to his mercy. And there's a day of vengeance of the Lord coming. Be reconciled to God. Your, in a sense, your fate is in your hands. Nobody can make that happen for you. You have to turn to him and believe in the Lord Jesus and say, have mercy on me for what I've done to you. I know you'll forgive me because you promised that. And let me say this as well, right at the end. I know, I know this is a bit heavy and a bit serious, but it's important. This is what the word of God says. Verse 45, when the chief priests and Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him. They were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. Isn't it very sad when people hear the word of God? They know it's talking about them. Probably they know they're guilty. And yet instead of turning to the Lord in repentance, instead of turning to him and asking for, for terms of peace, they simply want to kill him even more. When we hear the word of God, 
Do we obey it? Or does it make us angry? Does it make us more hard-hearted? Well, I, of course, I pray, pray that everyone who hears this, especially those who are not believers, will find their hearts softened by the grace of God. Don't let that be true about you. Be reconciled to God. And if you're a Christian and you've heard the word of God being spoken to you, don't become hard-hearted. Listen to it. Obey it. Let it change your life that you might bear much fruit. I think I've said enough today, but I do pray that we'll all have reasons to rejoice that this parable has been spoken, that we, by grace, have been included in the kingdom. And that by grace, we've, we've been appointed to bear much fruit, fruit that will last. So let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this parable. And I pray, Father, that you'd help us take to heart the warnings and the encouragements here. We thank you that the Son of God, although he was killed for our sins, it was not the end of him. But he lives today to intercede for us, to show mercy to the sinner, uh, to, to make his appeal to the, to the lost, to offer grace in the gospel, and one day to come and make all things right and to take revenge on his enemies. We pray, Lord, that everyone who listens to this will be found in a place of peace, reconciliation with him when he comes. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. That's the end of our service tonight. Do let me know. Contact me on the church's website if you have any thoughts or questions. And we'll sing our final hymn, which is number 305. Jesus shall take the highest honor. And I wanted to sing this because we've heard today that many people reject Jesus, but we know that one day he will be honored universally. And even today we want to honor him and praise him together. So please sing this with me. God bless you all.